What's up, y'all, and welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, energy, drinks, and pre-workout supplements. What can we tell our athletes? I am your host, Sean Reedy, along with Ray Levo and Brett Singer. We just sat and heard a really great conversation about energy drinks, and it kind of disappointed me because I'm an <laughs> energy drink fool and have honestly probably tried anything and everything that you can possibly talk about when it comes to pre-workouts and or coffee or um, things like that. So I think the bang really got to you, didn't it? Oh, man. <laughs> it just killed me. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I understand the, the, the aspect of it, of the true like detriment to potential health and things like that as well. And, and, and I will admit, I, I've probably honestly tried everything that you had on that, um, on, on that, on that file of what you've had in the past. So let's talk about just caffeine to start with in athletics, in youth, in nutrition. Okay. Um, so to, for starters, we know caffeine is actually, we, we know it's effective. It is a, a beneficial supplement for sport use. It's been around for decades. The research is, is longstanding on this particular topic. Um, when we utilize caffeine, it can be beneficial for time trial performance, for time to exhaustion. It can be improved. It can improve sprint performance. It can improve strength performance, muscular endurance. So you name it and more than often than not, it, it will benefit performance. And the sources of caffeine, um, whether it's coffee or soda or, or, or energy drinks or pre-workout supplements, they also have been shown to improve performance, likely because of the caffeine content. Um, and so what it's doing is it has uh, it acts as an adenosine antagonist. And so uh, adenosine um, uh, results in, in fatigue and drowsiness and those sorts of things. And caffeine has a very similar chemical structure. It attaches to those receptor sites, essentially blunts the effects of fatigue, and we see performance benefits related to that. Um, now, when we look at it from a, a athlete perspective, usually what we want to do is look at it for adults. Um, when it comes to youth, what we talked about earlier is that it, I can't seem to find an, an exact number as far as what youth athletes should be consuming related to caffeine, but it's low to nothing. Um, and so most of those beverages we discuss with its pre-workouts or energy drinks are going to be far exceeding the recommendations of what you would see for for kids or, or high school athletes. In the kids' cases, we would say no caffeine at all. In adolescence, you'll see 100 milligrams a day to as much as 2.5 to 3 milligrams per kilogram, um, so pretty low overall, and a lot of those beverages exceed that amount. So most of the recommendation for teens would be that while we know it improves performance, it's not really recommended for that population. Now, as they move into adulthood, we can make a case for why it might be helpful. But with some of those products, there are risks that come with that potential benefit for performance. I look at that one when I was 16 years old. And did, did, was there really an, a need in to go to the weight room and right. have a pre-workout? Right. And, I mean, I understand that, that that's where we're at now. And, uh -huh. or, or, hey, drink a cup of coffee or drink a whatever. Uh -huh. Prior to doing something like that or going out on the football field, I understand that, you know, you're tired, things like that. But uh -huh. I feel like the 16-year-old body or the 15-year-old body or, you know, the, the high school age athlete is just – that's a it's it's a fad that's potentially dangerous. It's it is because you also with a lot of these kids you don't necessarily know what their their health background is or if, if any of them are more at potential risk than others. And then we talk about for you or I the caffeine amount that we can tolerate might be a little bit higher because the size of us is a little bit larger than a freshman athlete who might be a bit smaller. 
the recommended levels for them, even if they are going to take in a little bit of caffeine, is quite low because caffeine needs are based on the size of the individual. So now if you take someone who's already not used to caffeine and you look at someone who's too low or very low body weight um, and young, we, there's a lot of risks that come with that caffeine consumption. You're right. A lot of times these kids are, are doing things that they could improve easily as far as nutrition and diet that would help with performance and energy levels. It's been shown that they've done a study like even something as far as uh, cognitive performance. Um, taking a 15-minute nap has been more effective than doing something like a coffee or high dose of caffeine. So oftentimes just getting more sleep would be an, a, a better tool for performance and they would wind up performing a lot better. Um, so you talked about in your talk the the actual genetics of, of caffeine mm-hmm. And so I've done one of the genetics testing, uh-huh. um, one, you know, the one, any of those ones that you can get on online and you can pay a hundred bucks or whatever. And, and they tell your caffeine sensitivity. Uh-huh. So my caffeine was, I was not sensitive to caffeine, which is probably true be, uh-huh. or as sensitive to true. Cause I can sit and drink a, now I also drink a lot of caffeine, but drink a cup of coffee mm. before bed and I'll go fall asleep just fine. Uh-huh. How does that affect? And I guess, how does that I know you talked about uh-huh. a little bit in genetics, uh-huh. but how does that affect our athletes and how does that affect us in, in our utilization of caffeine as well? Yeah. So, you know, it's not an area I, I, I'm as well versed in, but I will say there's some suggestions that some gene, uh, genetic types are at greater risk for cardiovascular complications related to caffeine consumption, uh, versus others would get a positive benefit from caffeine consumption. And as far as performance, we talked about CYP1A2, I believe is the genotype and that in some group, uh, a portion of that group gets kind of a, a slight to, to no benefit at all, uh, versus one group gets a very distinct, uh, uh positive response to it. And another group gets a very negative response overall. So you look at it, and in a lot of cases, when you look at research studies on caffeine, about there's usually, if we're looking at time trial performance improvement or performance improves by 3% on average. But if you look at all the, the subjects within it, some get a really positive response, some get a negative response. Ultimately, it's about average 3% positive response. Well, so now the, the comment always in these papers is, well, some people are responders, some people are non-responders, and that's the justification as to why caffeine worked for some of the subjects and others didn't. Um, and so now when they look at this, as that, that paper that I referenced, they tested 100-plus subjects, which is a massive uh, amount of subjects for a supplement study. And they found, again, on the whole, the average positive response was 3% for the group. But when you look at some of the subjects, there was a 17, I think it was 17% a, a worse time the more caffeine they used. So if they used two milligrams per kilogram, performance got a little bit worse. Four milligrams per, per, per kilogram, their performance got exponentially worse versus a, another large segment of the group got exponentially better. So what that tells us is that a lot of our athletes just think that automatically caffeine is going to improve their performance. And logically, caffeine does work, but not for everyone. And we don't know what that is. And and unless we're actually, I, I know athletes aren't going to do genetic testing. I'm not suggesting they should. But what I mean by that is, is unless athletes are comparing, like if I have an actual standard measure that I can look at, did I do better with caffeine or not? Um, then it's hard to really tell if they're getting better or not. They may actually be getting worse. Um, jittery, nervousness, all that sort of stuff. If, if you're having a hard time 
um, you know, keeping control of your nerves and now you're trying to catch a ball in football or baseball, then that's going to be, or shoot a free throw. That's, that's going to be challenging to do just because you think that you need to get jacked up from caffeine may not actually benefit performance. I think that's something that athletes in general need to do a little bit better is work on, on themselves uh-huh. and knowing themselves as an athlete. I mean, we have some that are like that, but I mean, I know personally what I can do well with if I've drank, like I know when I would go to train or work out or, or whatever you want to call it. And I've had a load of coffee that morning. Mm-hmm. You know, I was busy. I was, do, I was in the office or something like that. And I didn't drink a lot of water. I know what I can do and feel functional or mm-hmm. I know what, you know, I probably better not drink a lot of caffeine if I'm if I'm planning on doing this type of exercise. And I think athletes need to kind of understand their body, start to develop those understandings of their body a little yeah. bit more. Yeah, we talked about the repercussions of it. It's it's not always black and white. You don't have to do caffeine every time. You you look at um, so I look, I work with MLS, uh, so mm-hmm. Houston Dynamo, and mm-hmm. we've got games sometimes that are at nine o'clock or mm-hmm. ten o'clock mm-hmm. at night. And we talked about caffeine has a half life mm-hmm. of about three to five hours. Right. So some of these guys, um, we've got a match today and they've got training tomorrow morning. So if you have a game at seven o'clock at night, you know, what, what is that doing to your sleep by consuming far too much caffeine? And that's something you just have to take into consideration as far as, uh, what's, what am I most focused on? And so when you've got like maybe a tournament setting in high school and you're trying to take in a heavy dose of caffeine at night and then having to try and wake up and bounce back really early the next morning, that might not work very well. Um, and again, are you a nervous athlete? Uh, are you already anxious as it is? If you're consuming caffeine, that may only increase your upset stomach or may only increase your nerves and may wind up hurting your performance, not helping. So it's not, not black and white that it's just automatically positive every time. Understandable. Yeah. What's your, what's your conversation? Uh, just flip the script to the high school setting. Uh, what's your conversation like with the student athletes who are, you know, they take the caffeine dosage, dosage before workout or training or what, or what have you. And they say, man, I, that made me feel great. Let's get more of it because I'm on I'm uneducated. Yeah. Uh, what's what's your conversation like with those particular student athletes? Um, I think for one, it would be explaining what taking a look at what they're consuming and, and what the dosing of that was and how that relates to their body weight. Because again, some of these supplements are far beyond what the recommended amounts would be for the size of that individual athlete. And a 100-pound athlete is completely different from a 220-pound athlete or 250-pound athlete. The needs of caffeine are going to be dramatically different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also to take a look at, I, I get that and I understand it, um, but can we take a look at what else you're doing right now? And is there anything we could be doing differently as far as sleep habits or nutrition habits? Mm-hmm. And what are some of the repercussions, if any, that come with that? So I think there's more questions to ask before you can answer that or before you can come to an, act, an exact conclusion as far as what you want to do with it. But I think I understand their, their premise of why they're doing it, but mm-hmm. I also would like to ask more questions before we, we make a decision on whether it's appropriate or not. But in a lot of cases, again, the dosage for kids this age is, is so low and the supplements that are out there are so high that I mm-hmm. feel like they're, they're overdoing it more than likely. Mm-hmm. So staying with, with just uh, with high school athletes in ca- and their caffeine consumption, I know one of the comments that you had said was there's in, I think in 2011, 20,000 ER visits from caffeine, mm-hmm. a greater number or, or not a greater number, but um, a, a large number with regard to those under 18, yep. correct? correct. So, yeah, so the percentage I want to say was, I think it was a little less than 50% of, of all uh, caffeine-related overdoses are in 19 and younger. So we're looking at a, a pretty substantial portion of our population that are coming in for these visits 
our younger population. Um, what are they? I I apologize, cutting you off. Nope. But what are they coming in and yeah. saying? Like, yeah. hey, so I'm ch- feeling like yeah, chest, my chest, chest pain, arrhythmias, and things like that. And so that that is one of the questions. Is is um, we've seen arrhythmias related to caffeine. We've seen chest pain and chest discomfort. We've seen shortness of breath. We've seen uh, elevated heart rate. We've seen increased blood pressure. Those would all be things that we're seeing. I think more than likely what they're seeing is, is arrhythmias and chest pressure and pain um, that's related to, to the overdose of, of caffeine. And I think it's most likely more often than not what you're seeing from them. Interesting. Do you see um, any prolonged effects from a single overdose event? That I, I don't know. I imagine, you know... Certainly that can happen. We've had cases now, this is an extreme case, uh, but I know there was a, a case where someone had to go on dialysis because of the, the extreme dose wow. that they went on. Now that was a that was a mistake made um, where they were utilizing caffeine powder um, and they measured the dose incorrectly because caffeine powder is very easy to um, mix up as far as the dosing. They wound up taking um, substantially more than what they should be taking. Uh, and wound up going to the hospital having to go on dialysis. I don't want to say they may have been, um, yeah, they were there for quite some time related to that oh. complication. So they survived, but you can die from overdose of caffeine. And there, there certainly are cases of kids, uh, which is why FDA has put out um, warnings against caffeine powder. So you can still buy that on the market right now, but it's very easy to overdo. I think it's a teaspoon of caffeine powder is the equivalent of something like 30 cups of coffee, right? And so trying to have a teenager try and measure a teaspoon uh, which you wouldn't want to do. A teaspoon would kill you. Um, instead, trying to measure the minute amount that would be appropriate to work um, is is really dangerous. Yet it's out there. So um, you can hurt yourself or die from too many, doing too much caffeine, as you could with anything if you overdose with it. I'll admit, I've, I've had some of the regular caffeine powder that because we were like, I'm not going to purchase the, the pre-workouts. I'm yeah. just going to build my own caffeine and some beta alanine and sure. some creatine and put it together yeah. instead of yeah this was a research lab and i want to say it was something along the lines of they gave them man i want to say it was it was either three or 30 it was some some absurd amount of, of grams as opposed to milligrams like they did went way way above and beyond what was ever supposed to be given That's by accident and it was a research lab so it's it's not people that are unfamiliar with it they just simply made a mistake as far as the dosing it's crazy so um let's go to I guess the additional stuff that's in those drinks, uh-huh. like let's move on from just caffeine itself, but to the taurine, the, 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. The taurines, yeah. the things that you, that you turn your, your monster, your Red Bull or uh-huh. whatever around and you're like, Oh, these, these are all the things that are giving mm-hmm. me the energy. Talk to us a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah. So you'll see things like niacin, you'll see B12, you'll see taurine, you'll see other um, stimulants in there as well. Obviously a lot of times you'll see sugar, or sugar substitutes potentially um, to help with flavor content of it. Um, and a lot of those companies will try and market it as those benefiting performance. Um, when we look at B12, no one is deficient in B12 here except for vegans and elderly adults. And that's going to be about the only people that are deficient. So the massive dose that we're taking of this B12 is not going to be particularly helpful. We don't know of it helping or benefiting sports performance at all. Um, when we look at taurine, there's been some suggestions that perhaps it can be helpful, but the majority of the evidence seems to show that it's not any more beneficial. And the paper I mentioned earlier is they've, they've looked at Red Bull or another energy drink uh, in comparison to caffeine itself and just uh, made the caffeine dose equivalent to one another, but then look at a, 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 a supplement drink that, that now contains all those other in, uh, ingredients in there and, again, showed no real difference in performance between the two. So from a performance standpoint, I don't think they're any more beneficial 
even though they may claim it to be. Um, there is some suggestion that perhaps it's some of those other extra ingredients that may be part of the reason why the extra risk is there. So there's been very rare, but a, a few cases of, I mentioned, of, of liver complications related to potentially niacin overdosing because of heavy chronic usage of those beverages. Um, and then there's some suggestion that perhaps maybe the taurine and other components of it could be part of the reason why. In some cases, you'll see some of a difference between drinking one of those versus uh, coffee or caffeine and, and the effects on blood pressure. In other cases, you'll see very similar response. So um, there's thought process that perhaps some of those other extracurricular ingredients in there could be why you're seeing um, some of the uh, potential health risks that come with them. You talk about pre-workout supplements, and now there's a whole another host of other things that are in there as well. Uh, and many of those things are touted for their performance benefits, some of which are really effective. However, oftentimes they're found in insufficient doses um, or maybe with the wrong format or in combination with things that may not benefit or actually hinder the benefit of that particular ingredient. So let's go off with that. You put a awesome slide up that mm -hmm. said there are five mm -hmm. yeah five supplements that are recommended mm -hmm. and if you're not hitting this dose uh -huh. and if you're not utilizing those five supplements it's really honestly not worth having Cor supplementing your with them with Cor anything Correct. so talk to us about yeah. those if you could so and, and certainly there's more more out there than just that because we look at health and other things like that so yes. whether it's vitamin d or omega-3 or, or or calcium or whatever it may be those things are, are different Absolutely. But, but the ioc has put out a position paper where, where basically they've referenced um, beta alanine uh, creatine monohydrate caffeine uh, dietary nitrate, otherwise called beetroot juice, mm -hmm. and sodium bicarbonate. And basically said those are the five supplements that we really know improve performance and that are ideal um, and that are safe, that are um, that are not illegal, they're not banned, mm -hmm. right? And now you look at the dosing of those. So uh, beta alanine is, is a um, intracellular buffer. So it essentially allows you uh, to buffer some of the um, uh, hydrogen ions and acidity that you'll find that occurs when we do a high intensity effort. And so it allows you to sustain higher intensity efforts for longer before fatigue occurs, right? Usually what you'll see with beta alanine is that it provides a, a tingling sensation that we call paresthesia. Mm. And that's a common side effect that a lot of people report, like they like that feeling. Mm. Okay. That usually comes in around one and a half grams or two grams or so of the dosage. For beta alanine to work, you actually have to take it chronically. You have to take it daily, and you need to take about four to six grams a day, or maybe three to six grams a day. And you usually will split that up into multiple doses. You'll take one and a half uh, grams, and you'll take that several times a day. And in doing that, over the course of four to 12 weeks, now you would see a performance benefit. However, what you'll see oftentimes in pre workout supplements is they'll put just enough of that in there for you to see, feel the side effect of it but not enough for you to actually get the real true purpose or benefit of it. So now you look at it and say, well, I would have to take that pre-workout supplement two or three or four times a day for me to actually get the proposed benefit of what this ingredient is. The issue is a lot of people don't know what the correct dosing is of that and whether or not that product makes it in there. And you also look at it, oftentimes there's proprietary blends where beta alanine might be part of a blend and maybe they say there's six grams of this proprietary blend, 
but you don't know how much of that six grams comes from beta alanine, mm-hmm. how much of it is caffeine, how much of it is creatine, right. or how much of it is whatever else they're putting in there. And that's really difficult for the consumer. So not only do they not know what the proper dosage is, what the right supplements are, but also they don't even know sometimes because of labeling whether or not that ingredient's actually in there in the right amount. And so by simply for athletic trainers knowing what those five supplements are, and this is from the IOC, mm-hmm. then it makes it a lot easier. If we can say, well, here's this label and there's 20 ingredients in there, which I, I referenced the average pre-workout supplement in that top hundred that they looked at was 18 ingredients. Well, if there's only five ingredients that we know is effective. Then, then what are those other 18 or 13 ingredients doing in there? And a lot of the times they didn't have some of those five ingredients in there that, that we actually do know to be effective. So, um, and I didn't mention this in the, in the presentation, but oftentimes when we look at a study, Studies are done in isolation. So we look at caffeine and we say, we give you this much caffeine and we look at this test and we see how you respond. Now, if I give you caffeine and five other ingredients, we don't really know how those things work together or if they hurt each other at all. And in some cases, like in the case of beta alanine and beetroot juice, they're two really effective supplements, but they actually don't work together and they actually wind up negating the benefits of each other. So you take these two supplements that we know are effective, but you put them together and they may not actually work very well. But we don't look at studies that way because oftentimes it's really hard to do research that way because it's hard to identify what actually worked and what didn't. Mm-hmm. Instead, we look at one ingredient and we say it does work or it doesn't. Now, when you put it into 15 ingredients in there, we don't really know how all of those work together to begin with. So to kind of jump on the uh, proprietary blend thing, um, is, are there certain ingredients that can't, they can't leave unreported? Uh, so they, they have, they're, they're going to report all those, uh, everything has to be reported. Right. They just don't necessarily have to report the exact dosing within the proprietary blend. So as far as I know, I don't think there's anything that would allow them to not report sure. what is in there. However, they don't have to report the exact amount that's in there. And I mean, it's understandable in the sense of I'm this supplement company. I'm making this supplement that I think is really effective. I don't want other companies to know what's in my mix so they can't replicate it identically. But nonetheless, it's really difficult for the consumer to do, to to identify if that, um, what they're actually getting for the product because of that. Right. The way I look at it is how many, look at the amount of, of research done in pharmaceuticals and, and, and the correlations that you can run into issues with, with different types of, drugs yep. mm-hmm. pharmaceutical drugs i mean you're basically utilizing similar yep. s- similar things and i mean you can have reactions yeah it's a combination of all sorts of things and so now you take a look at that and it's not as if everyone in society is healthy so you're taking that plus medication so now you got 30 things in there that you don't know what they are you're not certain of the dosage and you're taking actual medications to go with that how do all those things work together and that's, that's pretty tricky to do. So uh, the average person is not going to know that. And truthfully, I don't know that because, mm-hmm. it, you know, a lot of these things I've never heard of in my lifetime, which should make us question, right? Because, you know, if you sit there and you're really trying to stay on top of the research and you've never heard of an ingredient, then that doesn't mean it's not out there. And it doesn't mean it hasn't been researched, but it does mean it probably doesn't have a whole lot of evidence. And if it doesn't have a whole lot of evidence, then you probably don't want a high school athlete or really anyone consuming that. Absolutely. So going on to that, talk about certifications. Yeah, so um, there's several third-party testing uh, certification companies that are out there. The two primary ones that you'll see in sports performance are Informed Sport, 
which is a yellow label. Informed Sport also has a, a label that's green that's called Informed Choice, and those are a little bit different, and that can be challenging and confusing for athletes. Informed Sport is batch tested, meaning that they test every batch of a supplement, meaning I'm a supplement company. I uh, Before I can sell that supplement on the market, I have to send a sample of that batch to that company. They test it, certify that everything's clean, it's safe, it's, it's, it, there's nothing banned or illegal in it. Once that's done, I can now sell that on the market. There's a lot number for that batch, which is on the product, and it's also on the website for Informed Sport mm-hmm. as well. And you can compare those and make sure that the company, that the product that you actually have, uh, has been batch tested. NSF certified for sport is is the same thing. It tends to be a bit more mainstream here in the U.S., versus Informed Sport tends to be more European. Although there's certainly crossover between the two of them. Um, Right now, there, there's a recent position paper that takes a look at, at um, the third-party testing companies and has basically said that, if, uh, that NSF Certified for Sport is, is hitting all the marks, uh, whereas there's still a little bit left to be desired with some of those other companies. So when you look at USADA has put out a position statement essentially saying, so U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, essentially saying that no matter what, if you take a supplement, you're putting yourself at risk. But... If you do take a supplement, they are suggesting that the only company that you should utilize is NSF certified for sport. That puts you at the lowest risk possible because they are doing everything possible to third-party test and ensure that at the lowest amounts possible that they're testing for anything possible that could potentially set off a, 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 a positive test. So if you look at Major League Baseball, if you look at UFC performance, they will not allow any supplement to be utilized that is not NSF certified for sport. If you go to Major League Baseball and they find a product that is not an SS certified for sport in the locker room, it will be thrown out. Like you talk to any sports dietitian about that. That is that is the challenge they are running into right now. The testing is getting so extreme that that is the only way they'll do it. And even then, some athletes are so fearful of it uh, because it, uh, quite the sensitivity of the testing that, that is being done at nowadays that they don't even want to risk that. Um, so it's something to be aware of. Third-party testing is, is going to be the way to go. I understand in a lot of cases with athletes, high school athletes, they're not being tested like that. But it's essentially, it's testing that the supplement actually contains what it says it contains and that it contains it in the right amount. That it doesn't contain anything legal, banned, or harmful. Well, legal or banned. Now, certainly some people could react, uh, have adverse reactions to supplements. And just because something's third-party tested does not mean it's effective. It simply means it's banned substance-free. So there's plenty of things that have been third-party tested that I wouldn't recommend because it doesn't have the right dosing or it's not necessarily an effective supplement. Now, does, uh, I'm sorry, Sean. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Does, uh, now, does USADA have um, NSF certified products that they recommend that they, they kind of advertise to their athletes? I don't think they do that. I think they simply would say that that is that's all that Just they. Just a blanket will statement. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so they're essentially advising their athletes: you are going to be tested. Uh, from our standpoint, this would be the appropriate way to go. This is the best way. You're still at your own risk, no matter what. Um, and a lot of dietitians nowadays are almost kind of formulating contracts with their athletes, basically saying like, "We've looked at the supplement. We've told you it's not third-party tested." Any risk that any, if you take this, it is it is your risk and only yours. It's, so we've we've told you and given you all the information necessary to inform you that it's it's not a third party tested supplement. Um, and so there's there is certainly some risk that goes with that. Um, so yeah, that's there was one other thing that I thought about saying with that and I can't recall what it was. But yeah, so I would say that's 
that's the big thing is, is third-party testing is going to be a, a pretty crucial component. And um, our recommendation is always going to be that if it doesn't meet that mark, then from our standpoint, we wouldn't recommend the supplement. And again, I would say look back at those numbers or those or, or the, yep. uh, and those and those supplements that you had talked about before because like you said they it can be nsf certified and still be something that's not at that correct like, a true pertinent level of what, what what's needed for like a, a creatine or like the the example that you showed earlier the the different types of creatine when uh-huh. a creatine monohydrate is we know creatine monohydrate is effective. There are a lot of companies out there that will will produce a different form of creatine, and there's several of them out there trying to suggest that this is a new and improved uh, form of creatine. We don't need a new and improved form of creatine. We know creatine works. Creatine monohydrate has been researched just like caffeine for decades. It is an effective supplement. There is not another form that is better or new um, or, or um, better just because it's new. That's, that is simply marketing. And so when we see a supplement that has this wide range of creatine options, that's a pretty big red flag right away because there's no need to do anything other than creatine monohydrate. So I guess one of the things I think about is is for our high school athletes or, or just for our athletes in general, not even don't even have to be our high school athletes, but what are your recommendations in nutrition for those pre-workout? Let's, let's, let's talk about, hey, what can we do instead of, doing a pre-workout i know you talked about sleep a few minutes ago sleeps sleeps obviously the thing right now that we have realized that is probably one of the best recovery tools that we have but like if you have an athlete that obviously is is tanked a little bit and they've been they've been going hard and Uh we're trying to give them have have them recommend something for to Uh them what can we talk to them about yeah so you hit the nail on the head. Sleep is always one of the first and foremost things for recovery and preparation. Um, one would be uh, making sure that they're eating enough meals a day. So simply they should be consuming four to five meals a day easily, uh, preferably four to six meals a day is kind of a standard recommendation. So if they're not doing that, like that's one of those simple correctives, right? So um, you feel tired. You're only sleeping four hours a night. Well, then we need to correct that. That's a simple, logical correction. Mm-hmm. Um, you're fatigued in workouts, and yet it's 12 o'clock, and this, you haven't had your first meal of the day. Great. Well, that's a simple correction. So four to six times a day we should be eating something would be a simple goal. Uh, as far as the context of what a, pre, uh, a pre-workout meal would be, usually it be, should be a little bit heavier in carbohydrates. So let's say we have an early morning workout. I understand logically they're probably not going to want to get up and have a huge breakfast beforehand, but if they did need to have something, we would want them to consume some carbohydrates in the form of a fruit, a whole grain, uh, oats, uh, or a cereal or something like that that's rich in carbohydrates. If we're talking about they've got workout at the end of the school day, then we want to make sure that that lunch is a high-quality lunch. Does it contain a good quality protein source like a meat or a dairy or a yogurt or something like that? Does it contain plenty of whole grain options such as rice or pasta um, or something like a, a, a fruit or starchy vegetable? Um, we want to make sure that we're getting plenty of carbohydrates. We want to make sure we're getting plenty of protein uh, ahead of that. And if they're still feeling a little bit tired or maybe a little bit hungry last hour before that workout, maybe one last additional snack that's carbohydrate rich such as fruit or something like that. Um, crackers and something mm-hmm. online that's carbohydrate rich. So carbs are usually going to be your primary fuel source, making sure that they're getting plenty of sleep, making sure that the quality of the meals is good, uh, make sure that they're eating enough meals in general. If we can do those things, then we're, we're improving and they may wind up seeing a performance benefit from that alone. Awesome. Anything? <laughs>
No, I'm good. Well, we greatly appreciate it. Okay. Um, Thank you, Brett. Thanks for having thanks, me. Yeah. Thanks for being a part of this. This is this is very informative. Obviously, kind of a oh. one of those things that as athletic trainers we're going to deal with a lot. Oh, yes. Probably <laughs> probably hit ourselves a little bit. Yeah. So, um, for the sports medicine broadcast, I am Sean Reedy. We have Brett Singer with uh, Memorial Herman and Ray Olivo.